Okay, you're on. Okay. So on 119, starting at the top, Ella, Oxhead, Strong, Power, Leader. Blessed are they who always are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart, and I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. All right, let me tell them that we're live and... Okay, we got that now. I should probably turn this thing off or something because Sergio and Yossi are having a conversation and we're probably going to get banged all through the class if we do. I apologize. Um, let's see here. We have some, we got that done so I can close that. We have some prayer requests. Sean, oh boy, and we prayed for him for a couple of weeks. He is miserable. He's down in Lehigh Acres. He's uh, uh, had heart problems, but he also is having really bad time breathing. He says, I have no life. I'm checking into the hospital, and uh, uh, he's just waiting for Jesus to take him. He is just miserable. So we want to pray for Sean. Uh, Jim, he's one of the moderators that he says he's going to retire, semi-retire from moderating. He's struggling with health and cognition issues. Poor guy. Mm. So there you go with that. And then uh, if you uh, know Jim, he's on... The YouTube stream is Guido Sarducci. And so and then Jonathan's brother-in-law died of a heart attack and left a wife and two high school-aged children. So he's at, poor Jonathan, he's already had enough grief in his, his family in the past couple, uh, three, four, five months to just, and now he's got this on top of it. So he's asked for prayer for the wife and the two children that are left behind. And then Daniel in the UK, he's the one that does the Bible in 10 broadcast. He is traveling for 10 plus hours for a funeral, and he's going to be talking to his Catholic family about Jesus. And he would like to have uh, people pray for that because he's you know, concerned about how to approach him, what to say. It's never gone over in the past, and he wants the right words and the wisdom to uh, to be able to talk to them about Jesus. And then, um, Is that who I, I sent yes, okay, good. yes. And then, um, uh, Becky in Colorado is still having some stressful issues in her life and she's asking for prayer over them. So there you go with that. And Beth, I have not heard, I sent her an email and have not heard from her, but she's had a kidney stone and I didn't hear back to know if she's past that or not. But. Linda hears from her every now and then. Okay. Well, if you hear something, email. let me know because I did email her yesterday and she didn't respond. So there you go. Okay, and then uh, we'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started here. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we certainly pray for these people and for anybody else that uh, is out there that's going through their struggles and trials. I know that Lisa in Australia would like us to pray for her nation, which is just going down the tubes so quickly. And uh, it just seems like things are at an irreversible point right now. There are some elections we would pray that... Uh, People would have wisdom and not go down the same destructive path they've been going down. But we leave that in your capable hands and pray for the people that are stuck in this unbelievable situation in the lockdown nation. And Lord, we uh, we just uh, pray for these people. We pray for this class. Pray that your hand will be upon us and that uh, nothing would be said that's inappropriate doctrine-wise. And if there is, please uh, don't let that fill people's minds, but instead lead them to 
the correct uh, evaluation of your wonderful word, which needs to be treated so carefully. Thank you for your word. Thank you again for this class, and we praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now this day in history says, must be the second today, 2 December. Okay, 2 December. He was no stranger to the Bible or to church, but at the age of 17, he was a stranger to a personal walk with God. The summer of 1849 broke warm with promise in Hudson Taylor's heart when at last God granted him the joyful realization of Christ's sufficiency for his sins. Many years later, Taylor recalled, well, do I remember that occasion, how in the gladness of my heart I poured out my soul before God and again and again confessing my grateful love to him who had done everything for me, who had saved me when I had given up all hope and even desire of salvation. I besought him to give me some work for him that I might do for him who had done so much for me. I poured myself, my life, my friends, my all upon the altar the deep solemnity that came over my soul with the assurance that my offering was accepted. The presence of God became utterly, unutterably real and blessed. For what service I was accepted, I knew not, but a deep consciousness that I was not my own took possession of me, which has never since been effaced. Taylor's interchange was outwardly visible that summer. He loved spending time in the Bible and in prayer. And he was so filled with the joy and wonder of salvation that he used his free time to share his faith with others. But as fall and then winter sent in, a coldness crept over Taylor's spirit. He doggedly continued to do the things he felt a Christian should do, but Bible study and prayer lost their sweetness. He went to church only out of duty. His soul grew weary in its struggles with sin. On Sunday, December 2nd, 1849, Hudson Taylor awakened feeling as sick in his physical body as he had been feeling in his spirit. When the rest of his family went to church, he was alone in the quiet house. He began a letter to his sister. Pray for me, dear Amelia. Thank God I feel very happy in his love, but I am so unworthy of all of his blessings. I so often give way to temptation. Oh, that the Lord would take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Tormented in his thoughts, Taylor laid down his pen, and then, like Jacob of long ago, he decided that he would lay hold of God and not let go, except thou bless me. What God did over the next few hours was so precious that Taylor never spoke of it in detail. But he did add this postscript to the letter. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, shout his praise. Glory to God, my dear Amelia. Christ has said, Seek, and ye shall find, and praise his name. He has revealed himself to me in an overflowing manner. He has cleansed me from all sin. He has given me a new heart. Glory, glory, glory to his blessed name. I cannot write for joy. What filled Hudson Taylor with such praise? Six words from God that, that day. Then go for me to China. Hudson Taylor did go to China. And he founded the China Inland Mission which became the largest missionary organization in the world. I've read his story, and that's why I know the things he went through. So, apologize about that. Great, great story of a great man. Have you ever had an experience like Hudson Taylor when you laid hold of and did not let go of him until he blessed you? This was a major turning point of Hudson Taylor's life. 
Jacob panted, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Great stuff. Great stuff. Did we ask a question about your daily or? Yeah. I just do that with you one on one. What? No, what? The doctrine and teaching that you had in there today, you were saying those aren't the same. Oh, you mean on the daily devotional? Yeah, yeah. Oh, a commentary. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yes, doctrine and teaching aren't the same thing. What, what's your question? Well, I want to know the difference. Oh, okay, doctrine is a set thing. Teaching is taking that set thing and passing it on to others. Now, you can have a teaching, which can be a, a noun, then it would be like doctrine, okay? But the point is that you have doctrine. The, the word is didaskamai, I believe. I could be wrong on that, but anyway, it's the act of teaching. You're taking something that is doctrine and you're putting it on. It's not just one thing, but it's two things. You're taking this and you're moving it on to another person. And so uh, some translations had uh, the word doctrine. I think the King James Version said doctrine. Well, that's incomplete because you have doctrine, but what are you going to do with it? You've got to teach it to people. And so that is the point that they were making. The word he was saying was in the teaching of the uh, whatever. Okay, I don't remember the exact verse. I think it was 242. Well, let's read it and then we'll. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Right. Okay, so you got that. So there you go. So doctrine is one thing. You can go steadfast in their doctrine, but if they're teaching, they're doing more than just giving you doctrine. They're giving you, well, what we do in the Bible class. I mean, we've got doctrine that we're giving, but we're also giving life applications. We're giving, you know, we're giving an hopefully something that's useful for people just beyond the rote doctrine of something. Um, in other words, you know, I think this a lot because I went to SES and while I was there, you had professors that knew a lot, but you could tell that they didn't have any heart for the Lord, okay? And so it's one thing to have all of the knowledge in the world. And it's another thing to be able to take that and give it to people in a way that will build them up. My, I can give you a doctrine. I can give anybody doctrine, but unless I'm doing it in a way that will instruct them further than just the doctrine itself, I don't think you're doing a good job. You know what I'm saying? I mean, in other words, I can give you every mathematical equation of how this leads to salvation, how this leads to sanctification, but unless I say, now you're sanctified, go out and live it. You know what I'm saying? There's more to doctrine than... There's... Doctrine and teaching are similar, but they're not the same. Well, it depends. Like I said, if you say the teaching, this is the teaching of Jesus, then that would be the doctrine of Jesus. Okay. Okay. But when you don't have to go look all these people up, but I said that you can, you see doctrine there, it's teaching. Well, a doctrine is a teaching. Okay. Okay. And instruction. Think of the word instruction, which is what the Hebrew word Torah, okay, means instruction. Okay, that's instruction. But time and time again, Moses says, hear and do, right? We've been going through that in the, uh, the thing. So you can hear and not do. You can do without hearing. That's a person that he never heard, but he does. He's actually applying something to his life because it's inside of him. So there's a difference. Even now, if you say the Torah, the teaching, the instruction, that is the basics. But there's more involved than just having doctrine. There's actually applying it to your life. And I gave during that uh, the example of David. David didn't always follow the Torah, but he had a heart for the Lord in the process, okay? And so he would be a better teacher of somebody of 
the Torah than a Torah teacher that just simply teaches the doctrine of the Torah. Because David is saying, you need to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. You can read that word and not let it sink in. But David let that sink in. He understood that that was a higher priority than, you know, wearing a, a tzitzit on his talit, okay, or on his garments. So, so he, it's applied. He applied it. He applied it. That's right. And if he was to talk to somebody about it, he would be a teacher of it. Whereas a person that sits in a classroom and has doctrine, he may be a teacher of doctrine, but he's not living it, so he's not really teaching it, right? So I would use that as an example. Ooh, come here. We need you to come up here. But we're just about to get started, so this is perfect timing. Um, this is my wife, who is extremely late. Come up here. You're supposed to come here. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, the bridge was up. Okay, it's been up for 15 minutes. I don't think he's going to whip you. Or the bridge yet. took 15. I just wanted to show the cute shirts that our friend sent us. And so we got matching shirts. And I, I know my beard has been hiding it, but this is for Rod and Paula out in San Diego. They sent these to us, and we're so thankful because... The lady at the uh, Kringle shop, yes, I went and got Kringle today. She said, it's like it's coming out. It's 3D. I said, no, it's not. And she actually had to feel it to believe that it wasn't 3D. Okay, late wife, you can go sit down now. What's that? Yes, mine has a beard on it, so it kind of hides it. Anyway, we're, we're, we're dressing up like twins today. Burke's got one more question. In the bag? Oh, that, he didn't show up, so I'll put it back over there. It's, it's something that somebody that is out of town had a delivery and it was not by usps who holds your stuff and i thought he would be here tonight i don't want to give away any information but i had to go and pick it up to make sure that nobody what do you call the robbers the stoop robbers oh, or, uh, they've got a, a, a name for them people that go and rob st stuff off of pe people's stoops well that's what that is but he's not here so i'll put it back over there okay so we are now in ephesians 6 verse 13. You know what? And if you look at the last week's video, I apologize. It says whatever, Ephesians 6, 9 through 13. That's incorrect. It should be 9 through 12. Whatever. I, I will have to correct that either when I get home or tomorrow. I forgot all about, um, I, I mean, I completely blew that. So we are in Ephesians 6, 13, and I'll get last week's title corrected at some point. Okay. Two weeks ago, because we weren't here for Thanksgiving. That's right. correct. That was a tough, tough day for us as we sat and rejoiced in what the Lord has given us. Very difficult. Okay. Um, go ahead. 613. Start at 10. Okay. The armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the power of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. Okay. Let me remind. Almost the same, but a couple different words. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Okay, so we have uh, that, and then he's going to tell us about the armor of God coming up in the next verse, but he's telling us to take up the armor of God. Now, um, I had a point. Somebody it sent me an email, and I said they asked a question. I'm trying to think of what I said, but anyway, it dealt with the armor of God. There's not a lot on this teaching. You know, people write books about this, and you know, 
whatever, but there's not a lot. If you can just simply go to Ephesians 6 and read this and say, this is our instruction for this particular issue, just apply it. It, it don't, won't take you any time at all to read through it, and you say, okay, well, these are the things I need to do. I can't remember the email, though, so we'll just go well, on. I can comment on that. That is that they always stop at the source. Yeah. Well, that's not, there's an and. Yeah, absolutely. Pray in the spirit. And so that's a weapon slash defensive thing right there. Absolutely Prayer. right. That's right. But anyway, you just read them, and they're, they're almost self-explanatory, but we'll give you further explanation anyway. Okay, Paul now uses war terminology to explain the wrestling he mentioned in verse 12. Okay, we, let me read that again. It says, um, uh, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Of course, you get people that love to take this to extremes and start claiming that we're uh, doing something in Jesus' name and we're going to defeat the devil and all that. Listen, this is a personal struggle that we are in. We are facing these things. They are real but you can take anything to extremes that the Bible does not intend. We're not having a war with, you know, that spiritual forces, me against the world, and I'm going to defeat them. This is my life, and I'm going against the things that come against me. He's going to go against the things that come against him. This is how we do that, okay? This is how we apply this personally to our lives, okay? Paul now uses war terminology to explain the wrestling he made in verse 12. Though a wrestler... Excuse me. Though a wrestler will drop everything that hinders in order to have his hands free, he enters into a match. As he enters into a match, this is not the type of wrestling that Paul was speaking of. Instead, he is speaking of a warrior going into battle. In such a conflict, he will be fully adorned with both offensive and defensive gear. And if a soldier goes into a battle and he doesn't have the things that he needs, all of them, he's setting himself up for failure. You have to have a small gun for close quarter context. You've got to have your M16 for shooting people farther away. You've got to have your helmet. You've got to have your extra ammo, right? You've got to have your uh, flak vest on. You've got to have all of these things. You, if you don't have your, uh, your uh, army-issued boots and you have on sandals, you're going to get your foot destroyed as you step on things that the enemy has put down. All of the gear that is given to a soldier is given to him to prepare him for whatever type of battle he's in. I was using Vietnam because, you know, I've watched a lot of Vietnam movies in my life, but, you know, you could be thinking of World War II and a guy, uh, one guy has a flamethrower and another guy has got this, another guy's, and you go in as a unit and you go in to fight and win. But each individual is individually ready to do his job with the things that he has been given, okay? And that's what Paul is saying. You don't want to go in. Here you've got the, uh, I'm going to have my feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, but I'm going to skip over uh, uh, the, uh, the sword of the Spirit. You want to have everything ready. You want to know what Ephesians 6 says and say, okay, I know what it says, and this is how I'm going to apply it to my life. Okay. Um, in such conflict, he will be fully adorned with both offensive and defensive gear. This is the whole armor that he needs to effectively fight with and also to protect himself. In the case of our spiritual battle, we are to take up the whole armor of God, Paul's words. These are implements which Paul will next begin to describe, which are both offensive and defensive in nature. If we fail to use them all, meaning the whole armor of God, we will either leave ourselves open to attack, 
or we will be unable to go on the offensive. Either way, we will not be effective and well-trained soldiers who are properly prepared for the battle and we are asked to that we are asked to engage in. Okay. Well, you know, you can say, well, I I understand the gospel. I know how to tell people. I, I understand, you know, all the things he's going to be talking about, the breastplate of righteousness. And if you don't know the word of God, you are going to be as ineffective as you can be because the word of God tells you about all of the other things. You're only going to learn about them here. That's where you're going to learn these spiritual principles and the things that Paul is applying to a Christian's walk. You have to know the word, and you need to read the word every single day. I, we got somebody walked in today, and the first thing he said was, I'm in Judges right now. And he started talking about Judges. And what was it about? A battle, right? Boy, there's a lot of battle going on there. Well, that's all being given to us for a reason. It's not just arbitrary that that is uh, in the word of God. Every single thing is in there. And the more you read the word, the more that you stay in tune with the word, and the more that you think on what it is telling you, you will be ready to meet all of these battles. Okay, we're in a New Testament church. Okay, so we don't need to read the Psalms. Listen, reading the Psalms is one of the places where you are going to find some of the most intensive information that you can get for being in a battle. David was a warrior, and he wrote all kinds of Psalms, and he wrote them from his perspective as a human being. And when he says certain things, you can say, that guy really understood the nature of a spiritual battle that he's in, even though he's writing about something completely, seemingly irrelevant or unrelated to it. He's not. The guy was a trained warrior. He wasn't allowed to build the temple. Why? Yeah, he no. Was he was a man of blood. Yeah. The Lord specifically told him, you're a man of blood. You've shed blood. I'm going to have somebody else do it. Okay. He was a warrior by trade, by his very nature. And because he was a warrior by nature, it wasn't the appropriate person to build the temple, okay? But at the same time, everything about him was something that the Lord appreciated and allowed him to put into the Psalms. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you haven't read the Psalms because it's as clearly evident as it can be. Go back and read the Psalms from David's mind, thinking of this guy as a warrior, and you will see it, okay? You'll see it in a spiritual battle. You'll see it in his actual battle. You'll see it in when somebody tries to overthrow him. Who was it that overthrew him? His own son, mm -hmm. Absalom, right? And so he was a warrior, and he everything about what he did was from that perspective. So we'll go on. Um, according to his words, Paul, the intent of this whole armor of God is that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The Greek word for withstand is one which should be fully evaluated. Helps Word Studies defines it as, they give three points. One, to take a complete stand against. For example, a 180 degree contrary position, figuratively, to establish one's position publicly by conspicuously holding one's ground. For example, refusing to be moved, pushed back. We see that all the time with people that are willing to speak about their faith and how it relates to their obligation as people in this nation. This is a Christian nation, despite what anybody tells you, that is still on the books in the uh, Trinity decision of, I think it was 1893. They said it. It's never been overturned. This is a Christian nation. And when you are debating somebody, you take a Christian stand and you do not budge an 
inch. And that's what that's saying right there. We are not to be pushed back at all. We are making our stand. And whatever it is, I'm just using the uh, nation as an example. But it doesn't matter what it is. If somebody says, well, you know, people are always asking me doctrine questions, especially about, you know, divorce, about marriage, about, you know, what if somebody's living together and all that. And they will ask the question from the perspective of, well, is it okay if? And I will say, this is what the Word of God says. It doesn't matter what I say to you. What matters is what the Word of God says, okay? And I can't counsel somebody contrary to the Word of God. We had, um, uh, in the past, we've had people ask this very question in this class, and we've had, or I have many times, people email me about divorce. And one of the things they will ask is, what if, you know, a daughter or your uh, best friend's sister or somebody is in an abusive relationship? Doesn't she have a right to a divorce? And I say, all I can do is tell you what the Bible says. And the Bible gives one reason that is acceptable for a divorce. What is it? Infidelity. Infidelity. Sexual immorality. Other than that, I cannot tell somebody, yes, it's okay for you to tell them the pastor said it's okay to get a divorce. I'm not going to do that because I'm not allowed to do that because the Bible doesn't allow it. I say, you know, remove yourself from there. Don't have yourself in a dangerous position, okay? But... Paul would tell them as well in 1 Corinthians 7, if you are separated, you remain single. You are not, that's it. You can be reconciled or you remain single, but that is what the Bible says. I'm not going to be pushed. I'm not going to be moved back in that particular issue. It's what the Bible allows. And if somebody asks me, I'm going to say, this is what the Bible allows. You do whatever you want. You know what? You're not being imputed sin. You do whatever you want. You make the choice. You're the one that's going to have to stand before the Lord. But if you ask me that question, I'm going to tell you this is what the Bible says, and that's it, okay? Because that's what the Bible asks us to do, is to stand defensively. Two, to forcefully declare one's personal conviction where they unswervingly stand. This is where I stand on this, to keep one's possession, ardently withstand without giving up or letting go. Okay, same thing. The same thing applies. You're making your stand, but you're also not yielding in your stand. This is what I'm holding to. I'm not going to yield in that. I'm not going to let go of it. I'm not going to let anybody make me change because they're friends, because they have a lot of money, because they're powerful, because they're the governor or the president of the United States, and they come into the church and they want me to make a change for them. Don't do it. You need to have the intestinal fortitude to tell people, I am not going to do that. This is what the word says, and that is where the doctrine stands, and that is what I am going to teach, or that is what I am going to preach, or that is what I'm going to live out. Okay, three, it was a military term in classical Greek, meaning to strongly resist an opponent, take a firm stand. Same idea, but this is their third point on it. It's a military term, strongly resist an opponent. Okay. Now, if somebody doesn't know the Bible, and they think they know the Bible, and they come at you with what they think, okay, this is what I think, this is what I heard in a church, and it's obviously not correct biblically. Obviously, Satan is not standing there. That's a person, but that person has been infected with bad doctrine, and I hate to say it, but bad doctrine is from Satan, okay? The Word is given us. The Word is correct, and the Word is from God. Therefore, anything that isn't of God is from somewhere else. And Satan loves to insert confusion into the church, especially into people that are untrained. They're unschooled. And the way to be trained and schooled is to read your Bible. 
Okay, you will you get have all to forgive everyone. What? You have to oh, you have to forgive. Don't don't ever not forgive everybody. Yeah, that's what Satan does. He gets into people's minds. He gets little cliches that everybody suddenly hears and they believe it because they've heard it ten million times. Like you know, the perfect example is what we were talking about before class: tithing. Mm. Everybody's heard tithing their whole life. That's the church. My favorite pastor. He you know, it doesn't matter what somebody says if it's not a biblical principle then don't teach it okay and tithing is not a biblical principle i'm sorry it just is not you, we've done all of the tithing verses if you don't know what i'm talking about i've got about 10 sermons on it maybe five i'm just kind of exaggerating there but anyway we've got these sermons that clearly define the principle of tithing very clearly and it doesn't matter anyway because tithing is not a new testament principle it's never mentioned in New Testament, and to mandate tithing is contrary. It's not just, it doesn't align with the New Testament, it's 100% contrary to the New Testament, which says to give with glad heart. Yeah, glad heart, cheerfully, okay? It's contrary to it, because nobody ties cheerfully unless they were told that this is how you get yourself to heaven, or this is how you please the pastor. Oh, I'm going to tithe, and then I'm cheerful about it. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. It is not a New Testament precept at all. But even if somebody wants to push tithing, then what you do is you tell them, okay, I'm going to tithe the way the Old Testament says. And then you tell them what the Old Testament says, and they're going to have a heart attack, and you're going to have to visit them in the hospital, because the Old Testament doesn't say give 10% every year, okay? We'll go on from there. But the, the point is being made that you've got to stand firm on things like that. You can't just, okay, I'm going to waffle on it. We're going to start tithing in this church, because, you know, all the deacons want me to, don't do that. If the Bible doesn't allow it, then don't do it. If your pastor is telling you to tithe, because how many people online watch these videos and they go to a church, if the pastor is telling in that church to tithe, somebody needs to go and correct that pastor. Somebody needs to tell that person that this is not correct doctrine. Okay, that's just how it is. Anyway, as can be seen, to withstand carries the connotation of both standing firm in one's position and also actively declaring, as if on the offense, one's personal convictions. One can do neither of these unless that person is properly trained in the Word of God. That's all there is to it. There's no way around it. And let me make a note right here. Okay. But if that is not the case, then that person will withstand in... The... Yes, I'm sorry, but if that is the case, if they know the Word of God, then that person will withstand in the evil day. That's Paul's words. He will withstand in the evil day. You've got all of this stuff coming against you. You know the word of God, and you're willing to defend the word of God. Because knowing and doing can be different. It's kind of what you were yeah, asking about. Exactly. Yeah. You, you can know the word of God, and you can go and say, well, we're not going to do that here because, you know, I'm getting a lot of pressure. I'm getting blowback. Listen, it's not worth it. It is not worth it to say, I am not going to be obedient to the word. It's not worth it. Now, I'm not talking about in your own life, okay? And you have all kinds of things that come up in your life, and you do something wrong, and all of a sudden, I'm not a good Christian, okay? The Lord is taking care of that. You can work on that with him individually. I'm talking about when you're facing a decision, and you know it, you should do it, okay? Don't let anybody make you change your mind, and at the same time, don't waffle because it's not the popular thing or whatever. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about individual sins that you commit throughout the day. Okay, I'm talking about your doctrine and how you are going to stand on it. Okay, 
Uh, this is not speaking of any specific day, such as the day of the Lord, when he says you will withstand in the evil day. It's not speaking about a specific day, but rather it is speaking of each and every day that one may face the evil onslaught of the devil and his forces, which if you're in the ministry, it's almost every day. Somebody is coming at you with something, okay? If you're in church and you've got a friend that's nagging you about an issue, it may be once a week, whatever. But in the evil day does not mean a specific day. Paul is speaking about the general principle that you are going to face the devil at any given time, and that is the day that he is talking about, okay? For the Christian, every day may be the evil day, or it may only come occasionally. However, if Paul is writing to all Christians, and he is, then all can expect the evil day to come, okay? But once again, there's a problem. That if you don't know your Bible, you really don't have an evil day coming against you because you're completely unschooled in what you're talking about, and you may be the evil day for somebody else because you have something in your head that you are telling people that isn't true, and they know it's wrong, and they have to stand against you, okay? You need to know the Bible both from your own perspective and for the benefit of other people. And if you have a difference in doctrine, that has to be resolved by you sitting down and studying the issue together, okay? It's not going to happen on Facebook. I learned that very quickly on, all right, is that when you say something on Facebook and somebody disagrees with you on that, you're not going to solve it by giving them a logical analysis of that word. You know, Sergio found that at one time. Sergio one time uh, was having somebody email uh, a question about a point of theology. He said, I'm just going to prepare this. Give me all the information you can. I'm going to put it all together. I'm going to send it to him. And he, I said, you're wasting your time. And he said, no, I'm going to convince them. And he, it, it was like a five-page summary of the proper doctrine which was laid out. I don't remember what it was, but what did he do? He spent just an immense amount of time putting it together, appealing to the heart at the same time as giving the right doctrine. He sent it to the person, and it wasn't, it wasn't two minutes later the guy came back and he said, oh, I just disagree. He, he didn't have time to read the first two paragraphs, okay? He wasted all of that time, okay? You, you need to understand some people will not yield because one they're not willing to know the word and two they know the word better than you even though they don't know anything about the word you just have to get used to it it's hard to know who and when but you can eventually sense when a person is just going to be completely resistant to anything except hearing himself speak okay anyway so um uh for the christian i've said that however if paul is writing to all christians as he is then all can expect the evil day to come we must be prepared for it so that when it arrives, we will be able to handle it. And Paul finishes with, and having done all, to stand. In other words, we will have been able to stand because we engaged in the battle with all of the necessary implements we needed in order to be effective in our warfare. We employed our defensive implements as well as our offensive ones. We were able to stay off the incoming attacks, and we were able to go after the enemy and slay him. In the coming verses, Paul will name five implements that we can use in order to be effective in this battle. Okay, They can, they can be compared to the five smooth stones that David picked up in 1 Samuel 17.40 in order to slay the giant Goliath. David was prepared for the battle, and he prevailed. Now, I'm not saying that that is the picture that you're finding in David and Goliath, okay? I'm just giving an example. 
he picked up five stones. One of them took care of the guy. All right, he slung it, went into his forehead, and he wiped the guy out. Okay, I'm just making a point. Okay, I'm not trying to give any, uh, you know, typology there or anything like that. This is what Paul was referring to. It's not what I'm doing. Okay, if we follow through with Paul's advice, we too will prevail in the battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness, which surround us, which come against us. In the end, we will stand. Paul says so, we will. Paul speaks in a similar manner in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15 is the great passage. It's I call it the Easter passage because it speaks so much about Christ's resurrection. But, um, and yes, okay, I better say this because somebody just got upset I used the word Easter. Okay, Easter does not come from Ishtar. Okay, that's, that's incorrect. The word Easter comes from the Middle English Uster, which is, and I know I mispronounced that because it's Middle English, but that comes from the German Oster, and it goes back. All of those mean, anybody? East. Okay, what happens in the East at that time of year? All right, the sun is the furthest south, okay, and then it's the time of year when uh, winter turns into spring. spring. Okay, and that's when God chose to have his son come out of the grave because, and I typed something similar to this in an Acts, uh, I'm sorry, no, it's in my Christmas sermon, which I typed on Monday. That's where it is. Okay, Easter has nothing to do with Ishtar, any of those things that people love to say, oh, it's all Roman Catholic stuff. It just means East because that is the positioning of the son at the time of the year when Christ came out of the grave. And if you look at the layout of the temple or the tabernacle, which way did it face? To the west. It faced east and west. It faced north and south directly. And everything about those four points on the compass has meaning. We went through that in previous sermons in Exodus. All of it has meaning. Okay. The east is when the sun is coming up at this particular time. Well, guess what? That's when Christ came out of the grave. It's a time of renewal. It's a time of resurrection okay just because the pagan world uses things that happen at the same time of the year doesn't mean that it's a pagan ritual that we are celebrating the devil loves to do what with christian themes or the themes of the lord he loves to copy them and twist them all right so i use the word easter it all it means it comes from the word meaning east okay so I, I just know somebody's going to say, well, you shouldn't say that. We'll call it Resurrection Day. It is Resurrection Day, but it's known as Easter. Okay, so we're going to go on from there. Sorry, I didn't mean to digress too much, but that's just what I had to do. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What wonderful words. So Paul is always consistent. When he says something, he gives a, a consistent admonition or uh, exhortation. All right. Uh, life application. We are to declare our personal convictions boldly, and we are not to cave on them. Oh, the Christians would be willing to solidify their personal convictions from a biblical standpoint, and then to actively proclaim them. We are admonished to do so but in today's world, we have become too peevish about offending others to do what we are instructed to do. Offense, schmoffense. 
Who cares about the offense when the sacred duty of upholding the word of God is ours to defend and to proclaim? Christians, grow a spine and hold fast to this sacred treasure which has been placed in your care. That is what we are to do. That's what we are called to do. It doesn't matter if you're offending somebody in a church that has homosexuals. That is not allowed in scripture. You have to stand against that or you're going to be just like all of these churches that have gone right down the drain over the past hundred years. It used to be, you know, semi-sound or sound denominations. And now they don't teach anything of the word of God. Okay. Having said that, and before we go on, we are going, a lot of people like what we, um, uh, the two ladies, I better not give either name because I think one of them said, don't give me my name. And they just want to do it for the Lord. Maybe both of them said that to me. Anyway, two ladies have been uh, working, doing the, they take the classes and the sermons and they pull out little snippets. And some people have really been enjoying that because listening to a whole class, you just have too much information coming at you. They'll listen to the class and then they will come back and listen to these one or two minute long snippets of the class and it helps them. So they're called Tasty Bites from the Bible. And we've been posting them to the Superior Word YouTube channel for a couple months at least. And instead of doing that in the future, what we're going to do is we have established a new channel. Okay, so it's going to be just for those. And the reason why is because there's so many of them. You know, there might be five to ten in any given class. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take those and put them on their own channel. And if people... Uh, want to listen to those, then they can subscribe to that channel. And everything, uh, and I was going to explain why, is because there's so many of them that they actually uh, hide the sermons and the uh, main Bible studies that we do. And so we don't want to do that because we want people to be able to find easily the sermons and the Bible studies. And there's just so many. So we're going to take all of those and we're going to put them on a, another channel. The channel is already made. It's being worked on right now by one of the ladies. And you can subscribe to it. You can subscribe to it and it'll send you a notification every time it comes up. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm letting you know now. Um, I, I'm not giving the name now because it's, I don't, I don't know. I, I better get permission from the people that are putting it together so I don't overwhelm them. But eventually that's going to happen. And there won't be posted to the Superior Word website anymore. And that I'm not apologizing for that. I'm just simply saying it's a necessity at this point. And so uh, you'll have your own channel with all of these, and you'll be able to just listen to them throughout the week. And then the Superior Word will have the sermons and the Bible studies posted to them, just like always. Okay, so there you go with that. Um, that'll probably be next week that that is released. I mean, it's already there, but unless you know how to look for it, you're never going to find it. So, but it'll be a channel that is linked to the superior word. Okay, um, we're in 614 now. That we are. <clears throat> Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Okay, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, um, I wasn't turned there, so I wasn't able to compare. Okay, Paul now begins his analogies between the physical implements of armor and those of a spiritual nature. And as I said, uh, in case you didn't hear the previous class, it's probable. This is just a guess. We can only speculate on these things, but it's probable that Paul was standing there or sitting there writing and looking at a guard that was guarding him, a Roman. And the guard would have had all of these things on a breastplate, and he would have had a, a you know, a, a belt with a buckle and all that kind of stuff. And so he's saying, well, you know, I can make a spiritual application for people to understand 
because this is the perfect example of what we're going through in a spiritual sense. This guy, he's prepared for battle. And so that's probably what happened. Like I said, I don't want to make a doctrine out of that. It's just a point of speculation, but I think it is a good point of speculation. I would not have thought of that. I read that in a commentary, and I've read it in many commentaries, actually. But I think it is a good analysis. But when somebody says, this is what happened, we don't want to do that. Because some commentaries say, well, Paul was using the Roman soldier that was standing next to him. It's possible, but it's not definite. So we can say it's, he could have. Anyway, uh, he makes, makes his analogies between the physical implements of armor and those of a spiritual nature. These are certainly general descriptions which are intended to make spiritual points. Rather than being firm and fixed descriptions, which are to be taken to unintended extremes. This is noted because it is exactly what happens when people write flowery books about the analogies being made here. One example of the non-rigid nature of the implements of armor is that of salvation. Paul says that salvation is a, where is it? Uh, the, helmet. Uh, the helmet. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet. Um, let me see here, um, shield of faith. And yes, the helmet of salvation. Okay. Uh, where was I? Yes, it says, um, this is noted and the armor is for salvation. In verse 17, it is called the helmet of salvation. Thank you. However, in Psalm 18, verse 35, David says that the Lord gave him, anybody? The shield of your salvation, okay? The helmet and the shield are both pointing to the same spiritual truth, salvation, but they are being used in different contexts to make different points about the matter of salvation. And so, these descriptions which Paul is giving in order to make specific spiritual analogies is what is presented. And of course, they are very good analogies because they point to real truths in simple and yet profound ways. He begins with the words, stand therefore. This is in support of the word stand used in the previous verse. Okay, he said stand, now he's saying stand therefore, and he's going to further explain it. There it denoted the end of all of the efforts which a Christian will face in the spiritual conflicts he encounters. Here it is a note for the beginning and duration of them. We are to stand now, right now, active, in order to be found still standing at the end. You don't start standing in a battle and not keep standing unless you want to be defeated, okay? And that's the point that he's making there. Stand therefore, and all of these things are being used so that we stand, as he says at the very end or whatever, uh, stand therefore, and um, where does he say? I'm sure he says it one more time, and doing so you may stand. Maybe that's another verse he says somewhere. But anyway. Previous um, verse, the, end of previous verse and the beginning of this one. Okay, yeah, and that's what I said here, but I thought maybe he summed it up with that as well, and I don't see it. Anyway, um, but I know he says it elsewhere. Paul uses the term stand and walk so many times. Walk is how you conduct your life. Stand is how you defend your beliefs, okay? A walk is your, it's your, uh, your mode of living in Christ. Standing is your uh, ability to not waver in your mode of living. You're standing, okay? Um, let's see here. <clears throat> Where are we? Uh, verse 17. Uh, yes, in the, okay, there it denoted the end of all the efforts when a Christian will face the spiritual conflicts he encounters. Here it is a note for the beginning and the duration of them. We are to stand now active 
in order to be found still standing at the end. Okay. He then notes, having girded your waist with truth. To gird oneself is to use a belt in order to draw in a garment close to the body. Ancient dress was loose and flowing, like robes, either short or long. If one was to run, they would need to have these flowing garments drawn in tightly, or they would trip over them if they were long. So you'll see that in the Old Testament, Elijah or Elisha, or one of them, I think it's Elijah, he girded himself up. And what that means is he's got these long garments and he took them and he tucked them up in there so he can run really quickly. Because if he didn't, he would have just tripped over himself. And you'll see that in the Old Testament. He girded himself up. That's what that's speaking about. Well, in the New Testament, you got these Roman soldiers. And when they're not in battle, they've got these garments that are loose so that they're nice and cool. They're in the camp and they're walking around and, you know, you don't have everything you're in the, the Middle East or something and you're fighting and it's it's uh, hot out, you want to have something loose. Well, they would gird everything in closely. And in the battle, you know, a sword isn't going to get caught in a loose garment, right? And then what happens is all of a sudden you're stuck to this guy and now he can pull out a shorter sword and he can stab you in the guts. So you don't want to have that happen. Everything needs to be in tight on a soldier's garment, okay? If you're ever in the military, you know everything fits very precisely. There's nothing hanging out that shouldn't be hanging out. And, um, you know, I bet you if I, we got a friend that just retired, great, great guy from the Navy SEALs after all of these years. Uh, congratulations if you're listening, Chris. Anyway, uh, I bet you he would say that that was one of the really important things is to have everything accessible, everything very, uh, you know, nothing hanging out where it could cause you to miss grabbing this gun or this knife or this grenade or whatever. Uh, I, I just would imagine that's the case. But it's certainly the case with the way your military uniforms are made. Everything is very uh, well suited for being ready to fight. What's that? Being efficient. Being efficient. That's the word, efficient. Okay. Uh, the analogy is obvious, what I just said about um, pulling in your garments and girding them up. When one lies, it will eventually trip them up. Just think of Richard Nixon or the Clintons. But by girding oneself and drawing in the truth, there will be no room for lies. Instead, there will be freedom of movement in one's spiritual life. Okay? person is lying. The person isn't telling the truth. And what happens? Once you lie once, now you might need to lie a second time to cover up the lie. And eventually you become, Clinton is a perfect example of that. He had so many lies that he could no longer keep track of what was the truth. And so he had to make things up like, well, it depends on what the word is means. Okay. Well, everybody knows what the word means, but he couldn't say what he needed to say without making another lie. And then it would have become more evident. All right. I was too young to understand what was going on in Nixon, but I do know that he got himself in a uh, uh, situation and it cost him the presidency. Should have been the case with Clinton, but unfortunately we just kept on rolling with that guy. Anyway, um, next he notes, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate or thorax was a coat of mail extending from the neck down to the thighs. Under it is found all the vital organs which needed to be kept safe and secure from incoming jabs and blows by the enemy. In the Bible, the place of emotions, wisdom, and knowledge are said to be found in these organs. We think of wisdom, knowledge, and all that up here. That's not the way the Bible sees it. The heart is the seat of reasoning. It is the seat of thinking things through. Okay, you've got the visceral organs down here. That is the seat of emotions and of, you know, uh, whatever. 
so if one is unprotected against attack on these attacks on these things, they will suffer harm, obviously. If a person is attacked emotionally, they are bound to falter in their theology by caving to unsound moral principles. We talked about that just a moment ago. If you are not set in your theology, if you're not set in your doctrine, and if you're not set in your willingness to stand with those things, you will cave, okay? You need to be morally, uh, what's the uh, term we use? Morally, um, what's that? Well, morally grounded, but I'm thinking of a a word that, anyway, I, I can't think of it right now, but it means grounded, so same thing. If one is attacked through their limited knowledge of scripture, they will not be able to withstand the onslaught. And a perfect example of that. I mean, it's perfect. You don't know that 2 John says that you are not to even greet a person that doesn't bear the doctrine of Christ. And he's not talking about people in general. He's talking about somebody that comes with an aberrant doctrine. Let me read that to you so you know what I'm talking about. And then I will explain what I want you to know. This person doesn't even know that John says this. One, a 2 John 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, implying he's bringing a doctrine which isn't the doctrine of Christ. He's not talking about anybody in general. You know, somebody knocks on your door and says, hey, I want a cup of cold water. Okay, here you go. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, he's talking about somebody that comes to you with an apparent doctrine. Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Okay, Obviously, somebody that doesn't read their Bible doesn't know that that is in the Bible. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on the door, and they say, we want to talk to you about Jesus. And the guy knows enough to know, he thinks, that Jesus is God. That's what the preacher said, and so he's going to run with it. He hasn't read the Bible, so he can't really tell that's for sure, but he believes the preacher's a good guy. Okay, so the Jehovah's Witnesses show up. He's already not supposed to even greet him. You know, I'm sorry, I can't greet you on this level because the Bible doesn't forbid it. You've come with the wrong doctrine. Go away. Okay, he doesn't know that. And so he says, okay, and he starts talking. I'm going to show these guys how much he knows about the Bible. And they are very, very well trained. They're exceptionally well trained in a few verses that are taken completely out of context. And they know those verses. They've got them down. And they will, just like I just said, they will trip you up. You have no answer to them because you don't know the Bible. You haven't read the Bible. You don't pay attention in church. Okay, you did hear that Jesus is God, and so you you run with that. And all of a sudden, they start showing you why Jesus isn't God. And they show you this verse and that verse, and they're completely out of context, but you don't know that. And all of a sudden, you're sitting in the Jehovah's Witnesses for the rest of your life, suffering miserably and trying to work your way to heaven when Christ already offered that to you. Okay, that is what that's talking about right there. And if a person is attacked emotionally, they are that person is bound to falter in his theology by caving into unsound moral precepts. If one is attacked through the limited knowledge of Scripture, that person will not be able to under uh, to withstand the onslaught. This is a warning for people against aberrant doctrines taught by crazy cults or heretical teachers. People need to be grounded in the Bible in a sound interpretation of it. Likewise, a person's wisdom may be found in, may be found wanting if he has not been trained in how to apply the knowledge that he possesses. Okay? That's just one of those things. You might have, and this is where I was very thankful to go to SES. 
Okay, so it's at Southern Evangelical Seminary. I went to Bible College, but that's what it's called is Southern Evangelical Seminary. They had Bible College and Seminary. I did not attend seminary. I attended Bible College. That's four years, seminary six, eight, ten, whatever. Okay, but um, uh, I had read the Bible. I will just say I've read it 50 times. I have no idea. We'll say 20 times. We'll say 5,000 times. It doesn't make any difference. I've read the Bible many, many times. I knew what the Bible said. I had no theology at all. I could not have told you how the Bible weaves together. Okay. I'd read the Bible 10 or 15 or 20 times when we went to the church, it's the school and church that my children went to. Okay. And the, the pastor of the church is the principal of the school. And I didn't know how to tell he to go about Jesus. I had no idea. I'd read the Bible again and again and again, but I'd never done it. And until you've done something, you don't know how to do it. Okay. And so I didn't know how to tell her about Jesus. And we walked in to the, the thing to meet with one of the teachers. And, you know, it's what is it, parent teacher day or something. And they tell you how your kids are doing. And so we went there. And Pastor Ross, who is the principal, just happened to be walking by. And he says, oh, aren't you the Garretts? Yes, I'm, we're the Garretts. This is my wife, Edica. And he says, do you know Jesus? And I said, I love Jesus. And he just ignored me. He was like, okay, I don't need to talk to him. And he says, how about you? And she said, exact words. That's not hitting me like husband. That's her exact words. And he says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. And it took three minutes, and she had entered into the kingdom of God because of Pastor Ross's uh, unwillingness to speak to me any longer because I knew Jesus, and he was an attack animal. I want to get people saved, okay? And so I paid attention. I now know an example of how to tell somebody about Jesus. And that is your method. Yeah. You do use it. Well, and that's <laughs> yeah, what we all should do. We, we all should do it because that's what's necessary. And so um, uh, he did that. That was the first time I'd seen it. And you, then you learn later how to evaluate people's eyes and you learn how to evaluate their body motions. And pretty soon you know what's going to work, what's not, and how to change right in the middle of talking to somebody about Jesus. But if you don't do it, you don't know how to do it. And the same thing is true with theology. I knew what the Bible said. And guess what? Most of the professors at the school had no idea what the Bible said. They knew the theology of the Bible. And then they would say, well, Charlie, what does the Bible say about that? Because they knew that I knew the Bible. And that happened all the time. They would ask that question. I was only there two weeks twice, which means I was there for four weeks and everything else was online. But in those four weeks, I bet you I was asked 15,322,000,000 times, what does the Bible say about that? Because they didn't know. They knew the theology, but they didn't know the Bible. And so if you know the Bible first and you hear the theology and you know it's wrong, you can disregard that. But if you don't, whatever you're told by that professor is what you are going to believe for the rest of your life. That's why we have Methodists is because they went to a Methodist seminary. That's why we have Presbyterians that went to a Presbyterian cemetery. Seminary, not cemetery. Anyway, so they, they, you are given doctrine without knowing the Bible, and that is what you will believe. You need to know the Bible first, okay? And then after that, you can learn the theologies that are behind it, or the actions, how to teach somebody about Jesus, how to tell them about the gospel, okay? But there should be an order, and the order should, this is Charlie Garrett, I believe this with all my heart, the order should be that you first learn the Bible before you get into any talks with any Jehovah's Witnesses, before you get into any 
anything, you should know the Bible well enough where you can say, I know that's not right. Okay? That's the Bible. That is, this is what God gave to us. We develop theology based on the Bible, but the Bible is what God gave to us. What was that? He set the tone tonight. Oh, yeah. Good job, Burke. Okay, I wasn't even paying attention, but that's right. Good question. Theology versus teaching. Yeah, theology, absolutely. You, there, you can have all the doctrine in the world, and it can be as incorrect as you can imagine. But if you know the word, then you will put out proper doctrine once you learn doctrine. Like I said, you know, I went to SES. And so we had teachers that taught one thing, and I, that's simply incorrect. For the most part, though, I can tell you that SES, I don't know how it is now because it's been how many years, but uh, they had very, very good doctrine. They had very good apologetics, how to defend the faith, and they had exceptional Christian philosophy, okay, which is understanding how things work in the mind of God and within the church and so on. They had those three, and they were all very good for the most part. I was very happy to go there. There were things that I heard that did not match up with the Bible, and guess what you do with them? You just toss them out because they the Bible first and then everything else after. But they they had very good disciplines in those areas. Okay, so uh, the righteousness described by Paul goes deeper than a personal righteousness. Rather, it is, and this is Paul's word, righteousness. Okay, it is speaking of the imputed righteousness of Christ. All who call on him are granted this. From the time we are saved, we are deemed righteous. That's it. You are now justified in the sight of the Lord. You are righteous. Doesn't mean you're righteous. We've talked about that in other areas, and I certainly say it in the sermons a lot. You can be positionally one thing, and you can actually be something entirely different. You are declared righteous when you put your faith in Christ, because what did Christ do for you? He died for you. He died to give you his righteousness. The righteousness of God, which is now found in Jesus Christ, is imputed to you. So you are positionally righteous before God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be before God at all. You'd still be on the highway to hell, okay? But because of Christ, you are now imputed his righteousness. That does not mean that you are righteous. We talked about that in a sermon about three weeks ago. What were the two words? Imputed and imparted. To be imparted righteousness means that you are not just righteous because of another. You are actually righteous because of who you are. You are granted his righteousness, and that is your state. I can tell you, I was not imparted righteousness. I can absolutely tell you that. Hedica will tell you that for sure. My mom will tell you that for sure. I was imputed Christ's righteousness. I was not imparted righteousness. I am righteous because of Christ, not because of me now or anytime until I'm glorified. And then I may be imparted what I was imputed, okay? There's a difference between the two. Oh, did you have? Oh, he's just, he's just agreeing. Okay, he's saying amen. Because, and that, I got to tell you what, you get into the book of Romans and you read some commentaries and you will see people actually claim that you are imparted righteousness. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. I guarantee you that that guy is just as messed up as me. He's not imparted anything, but he has been imputed Christ's righteousness. Okay, so I'm going to read that again. The righteousness described by Paul goes deeper than a personal righteousness, which would be impartation or just righteousness on my own. That's what the Pharisees thought. They didn't think they were imparted righteousness. They just thought they were righteous. The law says, I do everything of the law, and therefore, and that's what they believed, okay? I heard um, 
I, what was his name? D. James Kennedy one time was giving a sermon, and he was talking about a comment written by a rabbi, some famous rabbi. I think it was many, many years ago, maybe even at the time of Christ. I don't remember, but he was reading this commentary, and he said, he was talking just like Jesus said of this guy that was, you know, I'm I'm so glad I'm not like this uh, tax collector. And okay, this guy was writing this letter and he said, I do believe that the only righteous people on this earth are myself and my sons. And if my sons fall short, then I am alone, the righteous person. And I thought that is a person that does not understand anything about God. He, he, yeah, he, he understands nothing about the holiness of God. If he thinks that he is a righteous person, wow. I, you know, he's going to wake up to a big surprise someday. Anyway, um, and that, that's the general theme of what Kennedy said. It's a par- Charlie Garrett paraphrase because I heard it 15, 20 years ago, but that's basically what he was reading. This guy said that. And I thought, oh, we are not imparted righteousness and we do not have our own righteousness. Okay. It is speaking of the imputed righteousness of Christ. All who call on him, all who call on Jesus Christ are granted his righteousness. From the time we are saved, we are deemed, we are imputed, and we are declared righteous. But will we apply that properly? And that goes to sanctification and holiness. Are we going to live out what we have been granted? Okay, that is the question which needs to be answered. We are told in Philippians 3, verse 9. We are almost in the book of Philippians. Unbelievable. We are so close. Okay, Philippians 3, verse 9 says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, which Paul thought he had all that time as a Pharisee, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which, (laughs) excuse me, which is from God by faith. That is what we're looking for right there. We're looking for what God has given us. We are told in Philippians 3, 9 about this sacred trust that we have been granted. It is the righteousness of Christ. And only because of that, only because of that will we be accepted in the presence of God because we are completely, completely depraved apart from Jesus Christ. Now, people talk about total depravity. I've talked about it with a couple of people in the past few weeks. Total depravity is something that is debated. You'll hear the term... I have no problem with the term. The term means that we are completely depraved. We cannot be pleasing in God's sight. But what does that mean? What does totally depraved mean? And people have different ideas about it. The Calvinist means that you are so depraved that you can't even choose good. Okay? That's the Calvinistic stand on it. You are so depraved you have no free will at all. That is contrary to Scripture. That is not true. Okay? We see people do good things all the time. I, somebody uh, emailed me about total depravity, and I, I tried to explain it to her. And I don't know if I was really um, sufficient in my explanation. The next day, she told me that I was. But I was watching TV while Hedika was preparing um, uh, dinner. And it was, I was watching a YouTube video, and it was something about people that do nice things, okay? And they were really wonderful clips of people that did nice things, okay? And I thought, this is a good way of explaining this to her. If we were totally depraved, as the Bible 
as Calvinists say, we couldn't do these things. And these weren't, say, people. These were just nice things that were done by people and for people. If we were totally depraved in the way that Calvinists explain, we wouldn't even know that we were totally depraved. And further, we would not be able to do the things that they did because there wouldn't be any sense of right or wrong in us. Okay, We would just be completely... They're taking, in other words, a category and taking it to an extreme that is not intended. We are totally depraved, meaning that we are so fallen that we cannot be pleasing in God's sight. That's what that means. But it doesn't mean we can't do good things. Why does he want to save us? Exactly. Why would he want to save us? Right. But more than that, uh, not more than that, but more than what I was just saying is that uh, we, now I forgot what I was saying. That's okay. Anyway, that's okay. (laughs) It's that, but the point is that we, uh, do know to do things that are good and reasonable for other people. We do see what, oh, I know what I was going to say, is that the Bible, what the Bible teaches is not that we must be regenerated and made good in order to be pleasing to God and then call on Jesus. What the Bible teaches is that we see the good in God and we are drawn to it. And that's what Jesus said. I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people unto myself. That comes after John 6. That's in John 12. And it clearly shows that John 6, 44 is completely taken out of context by Calvinists. Okay. John 12 explains to us that we are drawn to God because we see the goodness in him and we desire that. Not everybody will do that, obviously. Okay. But those people that understand what Jesus Christ did make a voluntary choice and say, I believe that God loves me enough to do this thing. And I believe that God sent us on. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And that person will be saved. Okay. That's a difference between total depravity. And there's all kinds of views. I mean, I just gave two of them, two general ones. But that here it is. Like we were made in God's image. Right. So therefore, that image is good. And yes. we have fallen. We have so fallen. We are, so the, the perfect design is now ruined right. by us. And yes, we have good in us, but we are just, we're falling. We're never going to be pleasing to God. Good in us in the sense that we can perceive good. Correct. Okay. Not that we can do something pleasing to God. Here's the two words that you want to remember in this debate. One of them is effaced, and one of them is erased. Okay? Is goodness erased in man at the fall of man? The answer is no. Okay? is what it is, is it's effaced. In other words, it's like been marred. And so God cannot accept it. Okay, it is not erased. And how do we know that? It's right there in Genesis 3. At the very end of Genesis 3, it says man now has the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, I, I hate to tell Calvinists, but they need to go back and read Genesis 3 and maybe it would take care of some of their problems. We now have the knowledge of good and evil. If it was totally erased in us, we would not have that knowledge, okay? Anyway, and that was part of God's plan. He knew what he was doing, and so everything is going to work out as it should for those who accept what he has done. Okay, Philippians 3, 9. As can be seen, Paul's use of these analogies is given to get us to think through underlying truths which have already been revealed in Scripture. Two passages from Isaiah were certainly on his mind as he contemplated and wrote. Let me take you first to Isaiah chapter 11. And there he says, Isaiah 
take a second, 11, verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness, the belt of his waist. And then going to Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah chapter 59 in verse 17, it says, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Okay, uh, here's another example of uh, knowing what is right, knowing what is proper. Okay, I uh, was at the beach with a guy, I, the bike shop at the mall. They have ride and paddle. And they've got these, these uh, paddle boards and stuff, and they got canoes and all that kind of stuff. And he needed help because there was an hippie that was in the water. And he said, we need to go get that guy. And he couldn't. Okay. He was too far out. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Ding. Ding. The ding. But we knew to help him, even though we couldn't, because he was too far out. Okay. Anyway, life application. Understanding metaphors in the Bible is an immensely important point of knowing what is on God's mind. God is the creator, and so he knows what is best in order to make sound spiritual analogies. When he uses water as a comparison to something, it is because the properties of water and the benefits to be derived from water are sound analogies to what he is describing in spiritual matters. Pay heed to these things. In doing so, you will find a treasure trove of wisdom to apply to your theology. And I tell you, it is all the way through the Bible. The Lord is my rock. He is my redeemer. Okay, well, we know that a rock is firm and unmoving. Build your house on the rock. And so sand is the opposite. It's shifting and it's not a, a good foundation. And you go through the Bible and when you see something, you see the fig tree, you see the olive tree, you see the pomegranate, every single one of those things, everything, the the metal gold, okay? Uh, my friend emailed me about gold in the Daniel thing. And in that case, it's not speaking of the attributes of God. It was speaking about the statue and the quality of gold is better than the silver, etc. But uh, you, you will have a consistency in the Bible when things are used in a spiritual application that will be so consistent. And if you think on those things, and if you don't know, you know, if you, you got to be careful with this. I'm going to say this, and then somebody's going to do it, and they're going to get some crazy analysis. You, if you don't know what a thing in the Bible represents, you can type in what does, you know, the fig tree, what does it represent? And you'll get lots of people to give their commentaries on it. And unfortunately, most people get the fig tree wrong. And because of that, they've got an error in their thinking about the rest of what the fig tree means in Scripture. That's too bad, but at times there are sites that you can go to that will give you a good analysis of the fig or of the stone or of water or anything like that. And because of that, when you read the Bible and you come across that particular thing, whether it's water or the sun or whatever, you can say, oh, I know what, I, I understand what's being said, okay? But uh, I don't think we're going to have time to do another verse. Yes, we will if I stop talking. Uh, we'll do one more, 615. <laughs> And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Okay, this is a little different. Having shod your feet, something I don't like doing, but I do like doing it with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Okay, uh, we had some wonderful people in the church on Sunday. You know, Thursday, Thanksgiving Thursday, 
almost always leads to a very small congregation on Sunday. I've seen this in other churches, and it's the same thing here. We had not many people here on Sunday from the church, but we had, believe it or not, three families. None of them knew that the others were coming, all Asian. It was the most bizarre thing. And so it filled up the church because we had the, but anyway, one of them was from China and they are like the Japanese where you always wear shoes. And she could not believe when she said, you don't wear shoes. She was horrified. Anyway, so I had to explain to her. I said, yeah, well, and I gave her my, my thing. I was born on the beach. I was raised on the beach. I live on the beach. Too far out. And I'm too far (laughs) out. Yes, I'm too far out. Okay, so anyway, um, what was the point I was going to make? Oh, yeah, having your feet shot. Here we go. The words of this verse have caused a great deal of variety in commentary, but what one simply needs to do is remember that Paul is in prison, probably looking at a Roman soldier, and he is using the military wardrobe of of his guard to make spiritual applications for the believer in Christ. The Roman army was the preeminent power, and it was a great and conquering force. This was because its soldiers were well-trained, and their uniforms were designed for waging war. This included their feet as well. A soldier whose feet hurt, or which were not either protected or which were inappropriately protected, would be at a significant disadvantage. I remember watching a movie, and or maybe it was a documentary. Anyway, Apparently, the Americans know how to make shoes. We made great boots for the soldiers in World War II, and the Brits never got it right. And now they've been around a lot longer than us, and they still didn't get it right. And the soldiers always were looking for American boots because their feet were always hurting. I don't know if it was the quality. I don't remember, but I remember that. I've never forgotten it, that the Brits suffered because of their shoes. If you got good-feeling feet, you're going to be a lot more effective in other ways, okay? So, I just remember that, thought I'd pass it on to you. Um, uh, Soldiers were well-trained. Their uniforms were designed for waging war. This included their feet as well, okay? Uh, The feet are at the base of the body, and they are that upon which everything else is supported. For this reason, the Roman soldiers' shoes were carefully designed for use in both offensive and defensive matters. Vincent's Word Studies describes their footwear. The Roman soldier substituted for the greaves of the Greek, meaning metal plates covering the lower part of the leg, the caligae, or sandals, bound by thongs over the instep and round the ankle, and having the soles thickly studded with nails. They were not worn by the superior officers so that the common soldiers were distinguished as caligati. So, that's it. Okay, that was their shoes, and they were known as Caligati. This is certainly what Paul is describing. A guard in the prison where he was would not be an officer, but a battle-ready soldier. His shoes would have these studded nails so that he could permanently plant his feet and strike without any slipping. They would dig into the ground, and there would be no slipping, and that's what Paul is saying to them. Further, the heavy materials would, at the same time, protect his feet on top bottom, and sides. With feet that were protected, he could then go forward in battle without worrying about suffering injuries to them. Thus, they were at once defensive and offensive. We are instructed by Paul with the words, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, the gospel is our base, and it is what we are to use as the support for everything else we do. 
if someone comes against us, we are to stand firm on the gospel, not slipping, not caving on our convictions. We are not to budge even one inch on the truth that Jesus is the way to peace and that there is no other. And with this conviction and firm base as a defense, we will stand steady. Also, our feet, which are our base, will be protected from harm. In this protected state, we can then use them for offensive purposes, that of going forward in the battle, carrying the good news of Jesus Christ. And we find that, for example, in Isaiah 52, which, oh, I've got to go back further, Charlie. Okay, Isaiah, let's see here, 52 and verse 7. Hang on a sec, there's 57, verse 2. I don't want that. I want 52, verse 7. Okay, 52, and it says, whoops, one more page. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then Paul repeats that in Romans chapter 10. Going to verse 15, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things. Okay, there you go. Life application, and we are done. The gospel of peace must be both defended and actively proclaimed. A gospel which is proclaimed, but which is not defended, will not be the sound and true gospel. If the gospel is defended, but not proclaimed, it will be a wasted message which dies with the one who bears it. Let us both stand firm on the true gospel and let us be bold in our proclamation of this marvelous good news. Good stuff. All right, here we go. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these wonderful wisdom, pieces and bits of wisdom that come out of your word that show us your heart for us and also your heart for us in doing something, not just for us towards us, but for us in our walk with you, that you would ask us to continue to proclaim the message that was first proclaimed to us so that we can continue to build up the church that is being built in the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to be responsible in this, to be firm in it, to be fixed in it, and to never waver in our convictions. You are worthy of this. You are the creator. We are the created. So use us according to your wisdom. But Lord, help us to be like Hudson Taylor, who is willing to give up everything to go forward and to do something wonderful for the people of the world in China. And Lord, help us to do it wherever we are. We can do it with our family. We can do it with those at work. We can do it with those we meet on the street or in the restaurant. Help us to do it, Lord. May it be so to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to go to break, break.